Hello Radioland, Podcastville and all the ships at sea. My name is Medea Ocher and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. Joining me today is my co-host, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Today we're talking to Valeria Lucelli, who was supposed to be in studio with us, but who had some travel changes. So we're speaking to her from New York, where she lives. And Valeria is the author of two novels, Faces in the Crowd and The Story of My Teeth, as well as a collection of essays titled Sidewalks. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, Granta, and McSweeney's, and she's the recipient of the National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 Award. Her new book is called Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, and it's about immigration. Today we're speaking with Valeria Lucelli, and her new book is Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, and it will be released from Coffeehouse Press this April. So Valeria, thank you so much for being here or talking with us today. No, thank you guys for having me. Okay. It's a great pleasure. I was thinking we could start by you telling us how this book came about and how did you end up volunteering as a translator for these children and when did you decide to write about the experience? Sure. I learned about the immigration crisis of children arriving alone in the southern border in the summer of 2014, because that was when it really hit the news and became a widely known issue. Previous to that, there had been migration of children traveling alone in the same way, but it hadn't been in such great numbers, and it had also not made the news in the same way. So although this is a very old thing that has been happening for a very, very long time. It really just became a crisis in 2014. And that's when I learned about it. And I started following the story. And at the same time, as that was happening, I was waiting for my green card to be processed, approved, or rejected. Mm. And my husband and daughter had also applied for a green card and theirs had arrived, but mine had gotten kind of lost in some bureaucratic loop. And for a long time, for example, I had to travel with something called travel parole. Sounds like something that you might get if you're a criminal, it's a parole, (laughs) but it's just like a document with which you can come back into the States when you're in the moment of adjusting status. I remember flying into LAX, in fact, once when I was on my way to the LA Times book prizes and I was flying in from London because I had just been in the London Book Fair, and I had the parole document, so I was paroled back in, and I was put inside the detention room for five hours wow. and questioned. Oh and so that status, sort of being between statuses and with this document, is just something that no one really wants to be in. But that, all of that, all of those experiences, mostly frustrating and full of uncertainty at first, I think we ended up being very lucky experiences for me because they they brought me closer to a much bigger, much more urgent problem, which is this crisis with kids traveling alone here and seeking lawyers. I started talking to lawyers a lot in that period, partly because of my own situation, 
partly because I was becoming more and more interested in the crisis with the children. And I eventually ended up asking one of the lawyers that was trying to help me with my case if I could volunteer in court, if they needed interpreters in court. And she said, absolutely. One of the big problems in court is that lawyers, most lawyers are not bilingual, at least not here in New York. I suspect that Los Angeles may be a bit different. But here in New York, it's funny because like the only two, everyone speaks Spanish except the editorial sphere and the lawyers. Right. (laughs) Which are two spheres that should certainly be bilingual at least. Anyway, so they did need interpreters and I started interpreting for organizations. Well, one particular organization called The Door, fantastic organization that not only provides legal aid to kids, but also provides comprehensive aid once they've actually been able to help them get legal immigration status in the U.S. and also while they're trying to get them legal status. So I I mostly work with them, although there are other organizations I've worked with in courts. Yeah, and that's basically the, I mean, what how I got close to the situation. I didn't want to write about it for a long time. I often thought if I should, because I I write articles in many spaces, and, and I decided not to. I decided not to, basically, because I didn't understand the problem as well as I thought I should before right. I could write about it. Yeah. I also felt that I didn't have the emotional clarity I guess I was kind of clouded with a lot of rage and frustration and things that are not necessarily the best, <laughs> the best ways into a lucid essay, right? I mean, there's yeah. a lot of things that you can write from anger and, and it's good and it's, it's also a good place to write from, and especially in our times. But I think that more important than that is finding a, a kind of clarity, right? Sure. Otherwise, it's just more noise, more ranting. Could you talk a little bit about, a little more specifically about what the role of the interpreter is in these cases and what your sort of experience was when you decided to go volunteer? Yeah, sure. Just let me finish my previous idea quickly. Just what I was saying is I resisted for a long time the, the idea of writing about the situation. But then in 2015, my editor, who had been my editor at Granta Magazine, John Freeman, was putting together a journal, the second issue of a journal called Freeman's, and suggested that I write about the situation. And at first I didn't really want to, but we talked about it for a long time. And at the end I decided to. I also decided to because I, my green card had still not come and mm-hmm. my work permit expired. So I had to quit my job for a while wow. at the university. Oh. And I was just in a situation where I would have just gone crazy <laughs> had I not like put my head to a good use so that's the period in which I had to stop working. I basically used to write this essay. And okay, and to answer your second question about the interpreter's role in court, I imagine that it may vary in different immigration courts throughout the country. What happens in Federal Plaza here in New York is that there is a room where organizations have set up a system in which they each visit the court on a different day of the week from this room in court, they can receive the children that come to their first notice to appear. That is like the first date they're given to appear in front of a judge in court. The organizations then wait for the kids there and they make themselves available to them basically by screening them 
and figuring out whether they can find them pro bono representation Mm -hmm. as soon as possible. And it has to be done really quickly because since the crisis erupted and the Obama administration declared these kids as part of something called a priority docket, which means that now, as soon as they became priority, instead of having one year, which is a standard time a person might have to find a lawyer, now they only had 21 days. So imagine having only 21 days as an immigrant child, an immigrant family that doesn't necessarily speak English to only have 21 days to look for representation. So these organizations basically screen and find legal representation. And then the interpreter uh, is tricky because the role of the interpreter initially would, I mean, by definition, would just be to sit with a lawyer and a kid and translate what is said from one side to the other Mm -hmm. in both directions. But because there has been such a crisis in terms of the lack of capacity that organizations have had in order to respond to the crisis, just because there's not enough lawyers, basically, that are willing to volunteer and help, a lot of interpreters have, as was my situation, have become the screeners themselves. So instead of pairing with a lawyer, a lot of interpreters just do the interviews, basically. So were you helping shape the case in some ways from what they told you to how you kind of deciphered the information? Mm. Because you write a lot. Oh, okay. Because you do write in the book of these children who the book is based around 40 questions. The 40 questions that I'm not sure if that's a document that the door has or is that from the... Yes, the book itself. Yes. is based on one version of the Doors questionnaire. Although the questionnaire ch- has changed over time. Okay. because So, like, the questionnaire doesn't look necessarily now... It doesn't actually look now as it looked uh, a year ago or so. But the original questionnaire was put together by uh, seven organizations that came together as soon as they heard that there would be a priority docket announced. So they responded to the crisis a little bit like the ACLU has responded now to all these crises mm-hmm. by coming together, pulling all the resources that they have together and sharing those resources and responding quickly to a crisis. That crisis was, I guess, less visible, less, I mean, not less horrible than a lot of the of things course, that are happening yeah. now, by the way. Just it was a little bit kept more quiet. But they responded like this. And then, anyway, the interpreter sits, if there are enough lawyers, the interpreter sit with lawyers and basically translate both ways. But if there aren't enough lawyers, the interpreters simply go down the questions themselves. There's no way for an interpreter to, you can't modify a child's answers. Of course, right. There's, of course, always a temptation to try to help them along that the answers that they give so that they're open with their answers and really tell you about the horrors that they're fleeing from because only those horrors will be will make them eligible for an asylum, a type of asylum, either a SIDGE status or asylum. So, I mean, as an interpreter, it's often, as someone who's screening more than as an interpreter, it's often very tempting to really try and dig, right? But it's also tricky because... You are, as a screener, you're not a psychologist, for example, right? So dealing with the recent trauma and wounds that can open and that you can open with just a question is also really, is something that is delicate and very 
and that should be taken very seriously, right? Of course, yeah. Um, I mean, I did think that was the, that you handled that so delicately because these children, what they've gone through to reach the point, you know, where they're in New York now facing deportation is is often just these long, terrible journeys. You write, you know, a little bit about how it can be difficult for them to talk about that. And as the interpreter, how it can be difficult for you to hear their answers. Yeah. Was, was that the most difficult part of the process for you in terms of not knowing exactly how to translate their trauma or having to yeah. having to push them towards it? or What's difficult for me is rather irrelevant in the face of what of course. the difficulties that they are facing. The frustrating thing is, as a screener or interpreter, not being able to help to do anything except just translate information from one language to the other. I've been thinking since then that I should study law and my family is begging me not to go back <laughs> to graduate school because finally stepping out of poverty, which is what graduate school implies for anyone. I do feel that in these times, especially the only people that can really do anything very significant are lawyers. I mean, yeah, of course, we as civilians can go out into the streets and we can protest and do things, but there's a limit. Our limits are very constraining. Well, something that it seems like you do very well in this book, and obviously as a writer, this is what you can contribute, is tell the plot of immigration and what you call the plot of deportation as well. So there's a steady plot that all the children sort of follow and retell when they meet you. And of course, there's varieties, but that it follows a structure, a particular structure. It is with the Mexican children that there's a twist. So I was wondering if you could tell yeah, us yeah, yeah. what that plot is and how there comes to be an exception when there is an exception and what the story it is that you're telling in this book. Yeah. Can I first say something about your very insightful comment about like what the place of writing mm -hmm. a book is maybe in the face of this? Because I think you touched upon an important point there, an important point for me at least in all of this, which is that I think Mexican and Central American migrants, I mean, migrants in general, but this community, the, the immediate Hispanic community to the south of the American border, is pretty much invisible in, or has been up until now, pretty much invisible in sort of the liberal circuits of discussion. And I think my intention here is to sort of give more visibility and through storytelling, which is, I guess, the only device we have as writers to create empathy. I mean, I think that the only thing that a writer can aspire to is to create empathy through, even in an essay, through to sort of bring things that seem foreign back home through storytelling. And I think that's, that's something I was attempting to do. I don't think that migration especially from Central America and Mexico, is as important as it should be in our discussions as a society here in the U.S. Right. It's like there's a cloak of invisibility covering Mexican and Central American migrants. They're perhaps the most invisible part of the population around us. They're inside the kitchens, down under the sort of bodegas in the delis. Uh, I mean, paradoxically, thanks to Trump. And his aggression, his very direct aggression toward Mexico and Central America, there has been in the last month a greater visibility 
But anyway, when I wrote this book, Trump wasn't even a candidate for the Republican Party yet. And my greatest concern, motivation while writing the book was, was bringing into visibility something that needs more attention. And um, it also okay. seems... I'm sorry, I, was re- I took really long to say Oh, that. no, it's fine. <laughs> no, but I, I do think that's important because not only is that population invisible and you give them voice, but also I think the entire process is completely invisible, right? I mean, to naturalized citizens of the United States, there is no visibility as to what this citizenship process really looks like. What you hear is illegal alien, illegal resident alien, all of the various categories that exist, but what you don't see is a very breakdown of the kind of process that you offer in the book. Right, and I think you also do a good job of giving some idea of the kind of not only the harrowing journey, but the what it's easy for people to say that, uh, you know, these people are intruders or they should just go home. But, you know, to ask children to go home to the circumstances that they're escaping, I think it would be hard for people if they really knew what is happening in Central America to want to send children back to that. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering in the book, in terms of the structure of it, is that something you came to? Was that really natural for you? Did you try writing it different ways? And is this the most like explicitly political thing that you've ever written? Because there is a pretty amazing indictment of the United States and its role in this larger problem than the connection between Central America and Mexico and the U.S., and immigration yeah. and gangs. Did you have experience working on things like that before? Or? That's a good question. I did a long time ago. When I was uh, an undergraduate student at the UNAM in Mexico City, I was studying philosophy and I wrote a dissertation that was later published actually in, in South America and Uruguay about illegal migration from Mexico to the United States. It was an undergraduate dissertation. It wasn't (laughs) nothing that I would want anyone to read anymore. (laughs) But it was a critique of John Rawls, the American philosopher, from the point of view of migration, and basically attempted to demonstrate how John Rawls' theory of justice and his book, The Law of Peoples, were a philosophical foundation for a lot of xenophobia, basically, and mistrust and non-acceptance of migrants. But I, for many years, was not able to write about that issue that had concerned me and always concerned me, I guess, due to my own personal story or due to the fact that I'm a Mexican and have lived a lot of my life between Mexico and the U.S. And then I took the issue back into sort of the center of my preoccupations when I finally finished my graduate studies here and was able to put my head to work in that direction again. But I wouldn't say that it's my only, definitely my only political text. Other texts of mine have been political in ways that are maybe not so obvious. Right, right. Right. The book I wrote right before that, The Story of My Teeth, is a novel, but it's, it's a novel about sort of the mechanisms of generating value in art in the world of contemporary art and literature. And it was written with a group of, like in collaboration with a group of factory workers in a juice factory in Mexico City that would basically read my installments out loud and respond to them and send me ideas, etc. I mean, I think that book is extremely political. Right, right. It's just not political in, in a way that is immediately recognizable. As Tell Me How It Ends certainly is. Hey. 
You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now for this week's book recommendation. So we're lucky to have Sarah Manguso back in the studio today. And Sarah has a book recommendation for us. What's your book? The book I would like to recommend is Eight All True Unbelievable by Amy Fusselman. It is her second book. Her fourth book is forthcoming. I can't wait to read it. But I just had an argument about this book last night with a writer friend whose taste usually aligns with mine. So, you know, it's impeccable and, you know, very, very highly attuned. And um, we were arguing about Amy Fusselman's first two books, both of which are fantastic. And he prefers the first one and I prefer the second one. I was trying to articulate to him why I thought he was so wrong. I even went online and started reading the very few reviews that even ran about her second book, this book called Eight. And they were just so utterly, utterly unaware, I think, of any of the important points that that Fusselman was trying to make in her book. So here's my attempt to rectify that many years after the fact. The book is about various subjects that seem unrelated, and she elegantly creates relation between them, association between them. And some of those subjects are being the mother of of multiple small children, competitive ice skating, watching monster truck shows, learning how to ride a motorcycle, being raped as a child, listening to the Beastie Boys, meeting famous people, experiencing ongoing trauma, and receiving craniosacral therapy. The general sort of trade disapproval of the book was rooted in, I think, this very hasty judgment that these subjects are you know, only with great uh, and awkward force rendered, you know, relative to each other or, or associatable with each other. And I think it's that's absolutely wrong because, unfortunately, the book has the look of a book that's been kind of just hastily, hastily collaged, you know, a little from here, a little from there. Oh, look, I've braided it together, you know, I, you know to use a, a word that I think is terribly poorly overused and describing such books with such forms. I think this book was put together meticulously. And I also think that the subjects the author chose were, were chosen with extreme care and that she does, in fact, draw relations between things that I had not thought of before and that I now am utterly convinced of. There is a scene in which she describes watching a particular monster truck that isn't trying to do what other monster trucks do, which is, you know, perform tricks perfectly, like uh, like an ice skater. Uh, but this particular monster truck has a different kind of performance, and that performance is one of just prostration before the act. This monster truck just wants to get, like, even more <laughs> fall over and busted. And Fusselman describes watching a video of this truck with her husband, at the end of which they were both in tears because they understood that it just, it had to do with a kind of love and intimacy that was just, you know, impossible to describe in other terms. 
Another thing that the book does, and another reason that I think it is absolutely a genius book, is that it manages to write about motherhood in a way that's not scrubbed of all sentiment or risk of sentimentality, but it is writing about motherhood from a point of view that I I now recognize that I wasn't really able to recognize earlier in my life, but I but I can now as, you know, a middle-aged matron. <laughs> and she writes about motherhood from the point of view of somebody whose ego has been obliterated, but she doesn't state that in such obvious terms. But I recognize her as as this writer who is writing from the point after obliteration. And she does so, I can't but be compelled by this person who's, who's it's, it's almost like, you know, there's there's so many metaphors for this, and I know I'm going to get both myself and Fusselman in trouble by using this one, but here I go. It's like, you know, the light coming to you from the star that's already died. It's, you know, the beauty that you see knowing that it's all over. And she manages to make me see and understand and feel these things without stating them outright. And so, you know, including sentimentality, which is something you're not supposed to do because, you know, it's damaging to feminism and it's damaging right. to any document, any, you know, any any serious considered book about motherhood. But she does it. And she, she writes about things that might or might not be supernatural, too. I can't believe this isn't a book that everybody is constantly talking about. Sounds amazing. So I hope it becomes that book. Wow. Can you remind us of the title one more time? Yes, it's called Eight. And the subtitle is All True, Unbelievable by Amy Fusselman. Sounds really great. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for coming back. It was my pleasure. You're listening to LARB Radio Hour. And now back to our interview with Valeria Lucelli. Her new book is Tell Me How It Ends. Valeria, would you tell us a little bit about Tell Me How It Ends and the project as a whole? Yeah, I started writing the essay first as just a shorter essay that would appear in the journal Freeman's. And the initial project, as I was thinking and taking notes for it and beginning to write, was to use the questionnaire that screeners and lawyers and interpreters use in court to interview Central American child migrants who arrive alone at the U.S. border and are asked to appear in court for a first formal appearance before a judge. And with that questionnaire, both provide a kind of x-ray of the immigration system in the U.S., or at least part of the immigration system, and at the same time provide a panoramic idea or kind of map of the migration journey that we are seeing in our world today, that sort of massive exodus of children fleeing from violence and drug wars and gangs. And would you tell us a little bit about the children you spoke with and their journeys in leaving their countries and, and coming here? Yeah. Most of the children that we screen in court and that organizations in, in the U.S. in court are trying to help by finding them asylum or other legal migration status, like a special juvenile status. 
the most of these kids come from the Northern Triangle, which is basically El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And most of them flee because they are under siege, basically, of the gangs, of two gangs, mostly, the Barrio 18 or Calle 18 and the MS-13, Malasalva Trucha 13, both of them gangs that were born and bred in L.A. in the 1970s, 80s, and then became widespread through the years. And they are fleeing those gangs and crossing Mexico, where they basically go through hell. I don't think there is anything in the migration, contemporary migration, as horrific for migrants as Mexico is. With the combination of drug cartels and their, their violence, a lot of them recruiting migrants in order to basically enslave them to work in poppy fields and marijuana fields, and then corrupt police and military and just a kind of wild ecosystem of people targeting migrants who are absolutely defenseless and have nothing but maybe a backpack and some dollars. And I talk about the situation that they face in Mexico. I didn't talk about that situation in the original essay that I published in Freeman's. That's something that was a, an added layer when I rewrote that Freeman's essay in Spanish and then in my head started obviously fighting with those monsters, that is the Migra, the Mexican Border Patrol, not the, wow. not the U.S. Border Patrol. So just the sole fact of, of rewriting this essay in Spanish necessarily opened the door to having to face what's happening in Mexico. That entire dimension of the book is new, it's not in the original essay. And then I talk about, after that part of the journey in Mexico, I talk about what happens in court. That is, once the kids are here, how are they processed? What happens in court? Like, how do people, organizations try to cure them forms of immigration relief? And then I dedicate some time to discussing what happens to kids in their communities here when they arrive. And I focus particularly on a town in Long Island where I work, where the university where I teach is, Hofstra University, and the town is Hempstead. And how the kids that are arrived there, and there's thousands of them actually arriving there, have to face, once they arrive here, the same gangs that they're fleeing from. So Hempstead, turns out, is a place full of not only MS-13, Barrio 18, but also American gangs. Hempstead was traditionally one of the major stages of confrontation between the Bloods and Crips, for example, and there's books written on the manor. So these kids are fleeing a nightmare and then come here and then it turns out that it's the same story here. So it's not very encouraging. And then last, I dedicate some time to discussing more independent efforts of people trying to take part in helping these kids recently arrived integrate in the U.S. And I talk about my own students at Hofstra who formed an organization with me called the TIA through which they offer English one-to-one -one classes and we have civil rights debates that hopefully lead to activism once these kids have a legal status or more, at least a more active involvement in their own situation and helping other kids that have just arrived. So basically we're trying, it's still a very small organization, but we're trying to think of ways to integrate a newly arrived community into our own. Something I wondered 
reading the book, you touched on this a little bit, was how the children that you were helping or translating for, how do they read your status as a immigrant? And is that something you ever talked about much with them that you were also in the process of trying to immigrate? Or did it just seem so completely from a different world that it didn't ever enter the conversation? It actually has entered the conversation, but in a very sort of natural way. Very recently, for example, I, I am in contact with some of the kids that I originally screened in court, especially the ones that live in and around Hempstead in Long Island and that have continued to be in touch with me through the work that we do in Tia in Hofstra University. And those kids, some of them are still in the process of receiving either SIDGE status, that is special juvenile immigrant status, and some of them have already gotten it and have work permits and this thing that I was telling you about earlier, which is the advanced parole document, and are still waiting for the green card. For example, one boy in particular that I talk about in the book is right now waiting for his green card. And he called me the other day saying um, that he was worried because his employment authorization card expires in July and he doesn't know what to do. And I had that exact same problem. My my work authorization expired, so I had to quit my job. And so I knew exactly like where he was and that I knew that his concern was actually really justified because there's huge backlogs in Homeland Security now with processing green cards and employment authorizations and everything. In fact, there's like a one-year backlog, apparently. Wow. So I immediately called his lawyer and then we had like a three-way conversation where she explained the situation. And I was able to translate very clearly because I knew exactly the steps that he had to go through, right? It definitely helps having been in similar situations here. Of course, my situation as someone who arrives in the U.S. to study in a great university has nothing, it's just not comparable to the hell that these kids are fleeing from and then the incredible challenges that they face once they're here. I would even say that it's sometimes even hard being from the same region in the world in which Mexico is such a horrible bully towards Central Americans. So that's often hard for me. I feel ashamed. Mm. I feel ashamed of what Mexico does with migrants. And I, that's something that I have to, it's my, my own monsters <laughs> and go that I have to confront when I talk to these kids. And I, I think in part, as I became so involved with this in court is because of that shame that I feel as a Mexican citizen who can't do anything in Mexico for that, but, but can do something here maybe. And, right, um, right. And how do you see the situation since you first started writing and working as a translator? As you mentioned, Trump happened um, and there's a little postscript in the book about the election. Do you think that Trump has a lot of bluster that Obama didn't have about immigration? But essentially, do you think things will change either way for these children? Yeah, unfortunately, I do think. And I've talked a lot to the lawyers that I know and that I work with. And what many lawyers suspect, what many immigration lawyers suspect, is that there's going to be restrictions. I mean, in fact, Homeland Security uh, on Tuesday the 21st, I think, released a memo about how changes are going to be made to the system that supports kids seeking asylum 
because, and this is what, what they said, uh, these kids are apparently abusing. <laughs> this is the, which is just unbelievable that someone can consider that children are abusing a system. But beyond that, there is among immigration lawyers the fear, and I think the well-founded suspicion that that system that helps get these kids asylum or other forms of immigration relief is going to be curtailed in such a way that it excludes more kids and, or it excludes perhaps certain nations. Uh. And that there's a precedent, there's a legal precedent for that. In 2007, if I'm not mistaken, Bush, his final contribution to immigration law uh, right before leaving and um, stepping down, made an amendment to a law that basically protects victims of human trafficking and the same law that actually helps to protect these kids. That law basically says that kids from all or people from all over the world may seek asylum or other forms of protection if they're fleeing certain circumstances. I won't get into the details, into the sort of the legal details of that. But what Bush did was add an amendment that excluded people from nations of neighboring countries, neighboring Mm -hmm. countries to the U.S., basically Canada, Mexico, but really just Mexico. So kids from Mexico have been excluded completely from the possibility of, of asking for asylum in the U.S., they are, most of them are deported immediately under something called voluntary return after they have a screening with a ICE official called the credible fear screening. Mm-hmm. And if the ICE official determines that they don't have a credible fears or that their fears are not credible, they just deport them back. Mm. And that's what happens basically because of this law. And I don't think that it would, might be too difficult for another amendment to exclude other countries and and the Northern Triangle in particular. But one would have to ask a really good lawyer that question. (laughs) This is what what I hear, what we've been discussing, but it's something that definitely exceeds my legal experience and knowledge. Well, Valeria, thank you so much for talking to us. I agree with your family that you should not go into law. <laughs> Partly because I... Come on. I, well, I support so whatever decision you it. make. But law <laughs> is very much an invisible practice. I do think that if one is concerned about visibility and invisibility, so much of law is completely invisible. And so to have someone there who makes the process of law visible is extremely important. Stick with writing is what we're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure you would make a great one. <laughs> that's, that's what my daughter says. Just, just stick to writing. You know how to do that, Mama. <laughs> In that vein, can you tell us about what you're working on now or what you have coming up? Anything we should be on the lookout for besides this book? I just finished a manuscript that I've been, yeah, that I've been working on oh, okay. for about three years. Okay. And that wow. I had stopped working on at some point because it partly deals with child migration. Not all of it, but partly. And I had abandoned it and stopped writing because what I, because I was basically full of rage, as I told you earlier, and, I, and the novel was becoming a horrible thing. <laughs> like, it, it was really bad. <laughs> Just because it was, I think I wanted it to give a political message. And, and you can't write from there. It, mm-hmm. um, not a fiction, at least. No, I think a writer cannot have the intellectual arrogance as to think that he or she can write a novel that can actually produce political change. A novel can indeed produce political change, but it's not something you can aspire to while writing. Right, or right. you just end up writing these like bad, pamphletary, moralistic, lesson-teaching books. 
So I stopped writing. I wrote this essay, came to terms with things, and then went back and finally just finished the manuscript. So, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, we're looking forward to that. Yeah. And congratulations on finishing. Thank you. Thank you so much again for speaking with us today. Thank you, guys. Um, It was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. Valeria Lucelli. Her new book is Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions, and it will be released from Coffeehouse Press this April. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Our executive producers are Medea Ocher and Kate Wolf. Editorial advisor, Janice Rochelle Littlejohn. Our engineer is Ernesto Oliano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production volunteer, Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, No One's Moral Conscious, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 